Welcome to Advantage. I'm your host, David Young, and today we have a special guest. But before I introduce him, I'll mention that in addition to getting to know him today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We'll talk about the most important things that schools and districts need to focus on first uh, in order to improve. We're going to talk a little bit about the evolution of education with some really interesting parallels to the medical field. And we're also going to talk about the importance and the positive impact that coaching has when you're a leader. And we'll even get into some tips for cracking the code that leads to coaching success. This episode is going to be one of those Leadership 101 episodes, and I'm really looking forward to it. So let's talk about our guest today. I am joined today by Dr. P.J. Capozzi. Dr. Capozzi is the Illinois State Superintendent of the Year. And he's a finalist for the National Superintendent of the Year through the American Association of School Administrators. He's a best-selling author, a nationally known keynote speaker, and a transformational leader and educator with an incredible track record of success. To be honest, I'm not sure how he gets it all done. He packs a lot into every day. He's written eight books, and his work and commentary has been featured on sites such as The Washington Post, NPR, CBS This Morning, ASCD, Edutopia, the Huffington Post, uh, and he was re- he was featured in a global leaders forum think piece along the like alongside the likes of General Petraeus and General McChrystal. He works in the education department of three universities, and he also provides professional coaching to several individuals each year. Not only that, but he is part of the Fit Leaders movement, so he's up at like 5 a.m. every day exercising. I've seen the video to prove it. In addition to education and leadership, I think maybe I need to talk with, to him about how to manage my time better. Uh, anyway, you can probably tell I'm pretty pumped about having him on the podcast today. So, PJ Capozzi, thank you for joining me today on Advantage. I'm equally pumped to be here. So, I've given our leaders uh, a little bit of background uh, on you and some of your uh, accomplishments, but is there anything else that you can share with our listeners, personally or professionally, to help them get to know you a little bit better? Sure. I would say that uh, the, the impetus of my, my story is based on kind of three big events um, in terms of, of why and how I behave the way that I do, which sometimes is beneficial, other times gets me in trouble. Um, but uh, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. Um, and so uh, first time at 17, then 35, and then 37. And so when when you go through events such as that, it, uh, it changes you. And uh, I, I like to say that I wouldn't have wished what I've gone through on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't take it back either if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it that has made me incredibly cognizant to try to suck every ounce of life and talent out of every single day that I have. So um, while I, I go really hard, right, because I don't believe that time is this this infinite resource that we have. Um, and I think that people, as you get older and age, start to realize that. Um, but for me, I kind of realized that at 17, right? And so it's put me on kind of a fast forward. Second thing I would say was that the the entirety of my teaching career was the inner city of Chicago. And uh, I would say that I grew up in, in the suburbs, taught in the inner city, assistant principal in an urban environment, and now I'm superintendent and I was a principal in small town rural. So I've kind of seen the gamut. Um, but my last year as a teacher, we had eight students in my in my school die tragic death. Yeah. Um, so when you think about just the continual angst and stress uh, 
and that that took place that year, it's still kind of hard for me to conceptualize. But at the same time that that was happening, my firstborn sons were coming into the world. And to see the juxtaposition between the life that my kids were going to leave. And at that point, like we were a single family, a single income family. Right. And I was a second year teacher. Right. So we weren't, we weren't rolling in dough. Right. Like, but like to see what my kids were going to experience compared to the, my other kids that I was serving mm-hmm. was, um, was a profound experience for me to understand why education is so valuable. Uh, and then the third thing that I, I talk about, which I don't necessarily like talking about, but uh, my first year as a principal, I was, uh, I wasn't very good at it. And uh, I struggled quite a bit. And uh, it ended up at the end of my first year as a principal with a student and staff walkout in protest of uh, my leadership. And uh, I remember, ironically, when hopefully nobody ever has to go through this, but if if your students are protesting you during the day, you still have to supervise them, right? Because they're still, still your kids. So I remember sitting outside at a picnic table, watching the kids protest me. <laughs> and uh, thinking like, I got 30 years left of this. I was 28 years old as a high school principal. Uh, I'm like, I got 30 years left. Like, I, it can't be like this. And uh, throughout that summer, like, I wish I could tell you, like, there was this great epiphany. And like, I learned everything I could in that moment. On the, but I kind of realized that from the time that I had been 12 years old, I was called a leader, right? I was captain of this or president of that or whatever the case happens to be. And my definition of leadership at that point was my job was just to get stuff done, right? Like, and I could create outcomes. Um, I hadn't really realized that leadership was about influencing people's hearts and minds and helping people see themselves for greater than they currently were. So um, the decisions I made in that first year were all correct in a textbook, right? Like my professors would have said I did a good job, but um, you're not leading if when you turn around, no one's behind you. And so I kind of had to figure out how to be a leader. And so the, like the, amalgamation of all three of those big events in my life is kind of who I am as a leader uh, and who I, who I bring forward right now. And once I kind of figured that out, uh, my career trajectory really took off. Well, I would say so. Gosh, those are uh, talk about impactful events in your life, but good for you too, for, for having the self-reflection and being able to, to look at those things uh, from a different perspective, you know, on, on advantage, um, we have a, a, it's a leadership and a leadership podcast with uh, an education uh, feel. We have a lot of principals uh, and a lot of district administrators that listen to it uh, as well. And I, even though I know it was a tough time, uh, I love to hear that, you know, you started out uh, your career in that way and you were able to reflect that or your administrative career in that way. And you were able to reflect back on that and, and not have an epiphany, but make the subtle uh, changes uh, along the way. And that recognition, we, so I run an educational uh, service agency, a cooperative in Kentucky. We just had uh, Todd Whitaker. Uh, uh, one who, of my good friends. Yeah, he's a great guy. And he, he came in and spoke yesterday. One of the things he talks about a lot, and he talked about it yesterday as well, is he said, you know, as leaders, we don't really have any power. Like you can't really make anybody do anything but we do have influence. And uh, you, you mentioned influence a second ago. And, you know, he just said, you know, the more really the, the irony is the more you use power, the more you lose power, but the more you use influence, the more you gain influence. And uh, so that, that really resonated with me. And I think our whole group, it made me think about that as you were describing uh, your first experience uh, as a principal. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, Todd's wonderful. Um, and not only is he a great speaker and hilarious, but he's been a wonderful mentor to me. Um, quick story on that, and then we'll get to the next whatever. But uh, first time I wrote a book, I got a contract in the mail and I was reading the contract and I was like, I have no idea what this says, right? Like sometimes you get some of those legal documents and and it was from the, the same publisher that Todd had done most of his work with. And obviously everyone knows who Todd Whitaker is, right? He's been doing this for 40 years. So I just DM'd him on, on social media and said, hey, I got a contract. It's through the publisher you work with a lot of times. I'm like, I have no idea if it's fair or not fair. Immediately puts his cell phone number in mm-hmm. response and says, call me. Which you think about like in education, especially like Todd's like on this pedestal, right? And you think like almost he's not accessible, could not have been a cooler guy. And we formed a great friendship from there. But that's just that's just who he is. He's just a good, just a good dude. Yes, he he definitely is. Yesterday, <clears throat> it was a it was kind of a neat full circle moment for me because when you know 17, 18 years ago when I was taking my principalship classes, you know, we were reading Todd Whitaker books and they were resonating, you know, with me strongly. And, uh, but I never had heard him in person until yesterday. And uh, of course, being uh, the cooperative that brought him in, you know, I got to talk to him a lot, uh, you know, outside the actual presentation. You're right. Great guy, good heart, and um, has done uh, a lot of good work in education for sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit about school and district uh, improvement. So I've read about, you know, in uh, Meridian Community, tell me if I say this right, Meridian Community Unit School District 223. Is that right? Nailed it. Nailed it. So you guys have had some transformational growth uh, in the past uh, several years since you've been there. Um, if you walked into a district today, PJ, what what would be the first two or three things that you would look for or areas that you would look into in order to uh, start to work on improving that school district? So I, well, ironically, I am leaving Meridian at the end of next year. Um, oh. So this, this is, this is ex- 100% what I'm thinking about every day. So I uh, couldn't have, couldn't have had a better question, but um, so the number one thing that I would look for, and this is going to sound somewhat trite, but I'll explain the answer is what I can celebrate in the district that I'm going to. Sure. Uh, and the reason I would look for that is because it's not natural for me. Um, like I literally have a shirt that says, nobody cares, work harder. Um, so like my, my, my predisposition is not to celebrate, um, not because I don't value the work being done. That just isn't how I'm wired, right? Like it's not necessarily important to me. So in moving into a new district, um, every district that I've ever been a part of, whether as an employee, as a leader or doing consulting work around the country, there's really, really, really good things happening. Um, and so at when I come in, I'm going to create change. Right? Like I can't not, that's how I'm wired, but I, I want to make sure that first I acknowledge and celebrate the really good things that are going on. Um, the second thing that I want to do is to understand the culture. And I think that culture is one of the most misunderstood concepts in education, even though everyone talks about it. I think culture and climate are conflated all the time and people use the terms interchangeably. Um, and I, uh, while I think they're related, they are definitely not even correlational to each other in some cases. So I need to figure out what the culture is. And the way that I like to describe culture is it's the way we do business around here. Who are we when no one is watching? How are we making decisions? Are we about kids? Or are we about adults? Um, so once I can can dig in, and that to me, that's not a that's not a meeting. That is time, right? Like I have to figure out how we do business here. And so once I can figure out where the culture is at, I figure I can steer the ship any direction I want to. Um, because if I have the culture, everything else is going to um, 
to make sense to me. So the way that I always look at it, and and I'm a, I'm a city boy, but I've, I've been in rural long enough now that it's, it's become part of who I am. So I always look at when you have a strong culture, you have fertile soil. You have fertile soil, you can plant any seed and it's going gonna, it's gonna to germinate and take off, right? If you have bad soil, you can plant the best seeds in the world and it might not work. And so you take a, a poor culture and put the best initiative, the best resources, the best whatever, it's not going to matter. Um, so my job as the leader is to, is, to me, I'm, I'm the leader of culture. And so that's the number one thing um, outside of figuring out who we're, what we're going to celebrate is to do that. And then the, la- the third thing I'm going to do is, is figure out both where my titled leaders are and where my informal leaders are mm-hmm. um, so that I can grow them. So like I view my job as a superintendent is not to solve the problems of the organization. My job is to create the capacity within the organization so that it can solve its own problems. Mm-hmm. So the success that we've had in Meridian, I don't know if it's success yet. And I mean that sincerely, like I'm proud of the work that we've done. It will be successful if in three years, four years from now when I'm gone, the district is still in a really strong place. That means I did my job. Because what I learned is that when I, I share with you that like my initial struggle as principal, but we had this massive turnaround in the, in the building I was in. We went from one of the lowest performing schools in the low performing county to one of the highest performing in the country. And then I left and guess what happened? Went right back to where it was. And yeah. like, that is like the number one biggest regret of, of my professional career at this point. So um, I will be able to tell if I've been successful as a superintendent, not by based on what we're doing while I'm here, but based on what we're doing when I'm gone. And the only way I can do that is to truly develop leaders and develop the capacity of the organization. So that would be my big three, leaders, culture, celebration. Love it. So uh, let me dig in a little bit more on culture because I agree with you. I think that's so, so important. And you hit on for me what the main thing is, and that is that we have a culture of doing what's best for kids. doesn't mean that we're neglecting the adult, the adults. The adults are important, but we're all in, you know, we're in the kid business, right? And so we have to be making our decisions and, and looking for those blind spots where we have a decision that may not look like an adult driven decision, but it, but it could be if we don't handle it the right way. So uh, when it comes to culture, are there some particular things that you're looking for that are kind of markers uh, for, you know, being able to tell what type of culture we have here? So for me, it's always what conversations are we walking past? Mm-hmm. So I, and again, this is going to sound like I skew negative. I promise you, I, I try my hardest not to, but like, I can't walk through a single school building, even the highest performing schools, some of the highest performing schools in the country and and do a, a walkabout and not find a handful of things that are worthy of discussion. Yeah. And so for me, the, if, if our, there's a big difference between kind and nice, right? And so my job as a leader is to be kind. And so I always think of it now, and we just had a conversation off air. Our kids are, we both have kids that are entering their senior year. Yep. And so my my boy entering the senior year's name is Jameson. My one entering a junior year is Jack. And yes, I do like whiskey, uh, but that's not why, but that's not why they're named that way. Um, but when when I think of how I want to treat my employees, I often think about how I'd want them treated. And I don't want someone to be nice to them. I want someone to make them the best possible version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so when I walk through my buildings or walk past a classroom or walk or have a conversation with my, my district leaders, my job is to be kind. And the way that I can best be kind to them is to help them become the best versions of themselves, not just to be nice. It is very easy to be nice, to walk around and like, 
there are times that I wish I was just like, you know, the quote unquote mayor walking around, shaking hands and kissing babies. I'm not wired that way. And I don't think it's productive for schools for people to necessarily be wired that way. Um, so my job is always to be kind and not nice. And so that's kind of the, the delineation I use when I'm looking at culture. Is this a nice place or is this a kind place where adults are willing to have conversations with adults about how we can better serve kids? Even if that takes more work, even if that makes us uncomfortable, even if that makes us a little bit on that edge of, of stress to distress, all of that is okay for me if we're moving in the right direction. So the, the goal for me institutionally is always, where's that line of comfortably uncomfortable, but psychologically safe, where people don't feel threatened for their jobs, they're not going home and I'm not burning them out, but I am not concerned with trying to make people comfortable. I am concerned with trying to make people uncomfortable in a, but in an environment of which they feel safe. I, when I think about anything that's great that's happened in my life, it's never been easy. When I think about anything where I've experienced growth, and I think the human body is a great example of this. So like, I like to lift weights. When I am lifting weights to grow, I have to be uncomfortable in that process. It doesn't come easy. So our jobs as leaders is to see people for greater than they currently are. And sometimes that means that we have to create discomfort so that they can start to see themselves in that same light. Yeah, that's great. And it, it makes me think there's so many connections there to growth mindset and continuous improvement and and creating that type of culture where we're being reflective. But I love the distinction between nice and kind. You know, kind kind indicates that we're that we're speaking the truth. We're doing it in a, we're doing it in a kind way. But we're we're looking in the mirror and, and we're looking at our organization and we're working to get better at all times, which really leads me to the next thing I want to ask you about. And you you talked about this as well when you said you will truly know if if uh, if your time at Meridian has been successful, if they're still doing those things, you know, two or three uh, years down the road and still having success. So in my experience, uh, not all of that, but a big part of that comes from uh, implementing systems. Uh, you know, there are lots of things that we can do uh, in the moment that will result in a short-term success. But in order to really have long-term success that lasts while we're there and then even after we leave, uh, we typically have to uh, put a system in place. So are there any, as, as you've done the work at Meridian, are there any systems that come to mind when I when I bring that up that you guys have put in place? Yeah, so I'll tell a little story about that. But I, I, I believe deeply in systems, but what I have changed how I felt about systems in the last three or four years is that I want to create systems that are flexible enough that still allow for genius to appear. Yep. Um, because when I first got here, I was creating such rigid systems that I believe that I inhibited some genius of individuals to come out. So, um, and the way that the, I think systems will sustain for a long time, but if I've got an amazing teacher or an amazing set of students with some weird skill sets, I want to take advantage of that and, and move forward, even if I know it's not going to be sustainable because I want to, I want to exact every bit of talent as I can out of it. Um, for us, we use the uh, Baldridge Performance Excellence as our systematic guide. And so um, I always fancied myself a system thinker when I got here. And then I got here and it was such a mess. I was like, I don't know where, like, I don't know where to start, right? Like, and uh, so I started looking for for frameworks or guidance on how to to help me to to level through and to to look at things. Um, and so, what what Baldridge has helped me to do is is two things. I said three things. One is that it forces you to identify your key approaches, which for that 
in school terms, that just means what are your kind of your big rocks, um, which the, the reason that was important is because it helped me to realize that not everything can be important, right? So I can't have 170 systems if I do, especially in a district, like I am district office, right? So, um, so that, that just becomes a lot. Like I've got a, a few, I'm certified district office, right? We've got other people in here that, that support in terms of support staff, but uh, it becomes really hard to have a, this density of systems because we don't have uh, the, the bureaucracy to handle some of that. So it helps there. And then um, it gave me uh, the systematic approach to figure out on what we do. And so we use the acronym ADLI, A-D-L-I. Um, and so everything that we're doing, we look at what the approach is, which is easy, right? Like, what are we going to do? The second letter is D, and that's for deployment. And this is where it gets it gets a little bit difficult because for me, we identify every person that should be impacted by whatever we're going to do. And then we test and stress test to see if that actually is occurring. So for me, it's absolutely as important that our night custodian knows our core values as it is our principles. And so if I'm going to say core values are important to us, then I have to deploy that. But that means I need to do individual meeting, whatever it takes, I need to deploy it. After it's deployed, we have to learn to whether whether we're doing is effective or not. So that just means we're, we're going to figure out what data we care about and we're going to measure our return on investment. And the I is also really interesting, which is something that I had not considered uh, before I kind of got deeper into the work, and that's integration. And so for that, that means whatever your approach is, is it integrating? Does it, does it amplify the other approaches you're doing? Does it run parallel, which is also okay, or does it run counter? And mm -hmm. so for... Um, one of the things we say in our district all the time is like, it's all good work, right? Like, so you could go to any conference in America this summer and they're going to in introduce initiative or there's going to be this ed tech, but all of it's good work. It just might not be good work for us. Yep. Um, and so figuring out whether it integrates with everything else we're doing. And then the second thing is when we look at data now, we use another acronym called Let's See. So we look at our levels. So where we're at, we look at our trends, where we're at over time. We look at our comparison. Um, which for us is really important because our vision is that we want small town values, but world-class results. So, um, and this is going to sound arrogant, but like, I don't care if we're the best district in the county. I want to be the best, best small rural district in the state or in the country. Um, and so it's just changed our comparables um, again. And so that's, the, those are the two things that have helped me to look at each thing systematically, um, which has created like massive change. So we've had a complete overhaul of MTSS. We've had a complete overhaul of our evaluation system because when we started to look at things in those matters, we realized that a lot of them were just too too big and too bulky. We had to streamline them. Um, and then a lot of them were just returning zero return on investment. And so if we know there's no return on investment, we've got to do something different. Yeah, those are those are great frameworks because they're, uh, speaking of flexible, they're flexible where you can run different systems or different uh, initiatives, things that you want to work on. You can run them through those systems, which uh, seems like that that's a that's a great way to operate. Yeah, it's it's the to go back to what I said before. The hope is that if we create that framework, that framework can can withstand. But then, if somebody comes with this amazing idea. We can put that idea to the framework and then exact their genius, right? Yeah. Like we can pull out their unique talent. So instead of it being like, well, no, it doesn't fit in our systematic approach or our framework. It doesn't fit into the binder. And now all of a sudden we're squashing an idea of this emerging second grade teacher who could be teacher of the year if we just let her be her amazing self. Now we can give her a framework of which to enact that where it fits into with everything else we're doing. 
Yeah, that, that's a really good addition uh, to be able to have the to have the framework, but for it not to be the system, not to be so rigid that you don't allow for innovation. And like uh, I think you use the word genius. I, you know, I, I think that is a that's a key. And, and that's a big key that I think we leave out. Sometimes we think of systems being uh, rigid, like this is just going to be the way we do things forever. And we really need to be able to uh, to morph and change uh, as new ideas uh, come about. And many times the answers do reside. We, we just talked about this on the podcast last week. Many times the answers for innovation reside right within your district. You don't really have to go get those anywhere else. There's somebody there uh, who is smart enough and innovative enough. And if they have the freedom to try something new, uh, they can really uh, generate some of the answers that you need to move your district forward. Well, I mean, that exact mindset to me is the the mindset that all effective coaches have, right? So if I'm coaching an individual or I'm coaching a team, when I'm effective, it's when I believe the answer already exists within the person I'm serving. It's my job to just help them realize it or pull it out of them, right? And so if we believe that about individuals, then we can believe that about our living organization as well. Is that the, the, the answer lies within us. We just have to figure out how to pull it out. That's right. All right, so let me switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the, I, I heard you speak uh, in a, a TED-like talk. I saw it on YouTube. I was stalking you on YouTube. And uh, it, you were talking about the evolution of education. And when you introduced yourself, you mentioned that you're a three-time cancer survivor. And so you told the story of, of finding out from, from your dad um, uh, that you were really sick uh, the first time. And, uh, and, and, and so then in that Ted talk, you went on to talk about the evolution of education, um, and how we need to be able to adapt and change similar and innovate similar to how the medical field does. You got to see that up close and personal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I think that would be interesting for our listeners to hear. Yeah. So I think that there's a, a couple quick takeaways when we just look at, at the world and how things evolve and how we, we problem solve. Right. And so, um, I think the easiest way to, to look at it, and I say this, and I, I like math, so if people don't like math, I'm going to use a math kind of analogy, so I apologize in advance, but the, the world is continuing to change at this exponential or logarithmic rate, right? So for those of you that are not math, that's very, very fast. <laughs> um, and then, but I think schools, and I believe this sincerely, I think schools are changing faster than they've literally ever changed. I think like, again, to go back to what I said before, like, that is time for us to potentially celebrate that, right? So like I, I'm being very intentional and thoughtful about trying to celebrate how quickly we're changing. The issue for us is that every mission statement, right? So whether I'm in Montana or whether I'm in Florida, every mission statement essentially says, hey, we want to create a citizenry that's informed and productive, right? Like, and they say it in a different way, but ultimately what we want to do is create good people, right? Good people that are going to contribute to the country. And, um, if schools don't change at the same rate society changes at, we're potentially irrelevant, right? Yeah. Like, so this is this is the the question that we have to tackle. Um, and so when I when I try to juxtapose that to, to the medical field, like that's a big deal, right? Like, as in the medical field, that would not be okay, right? Like, we would find different ways to change. We would leverage technology. Like, can you imagine? So, like, let's just use Marzano and Hattie for example, right? Like, so Hattie's done the meta-analyses of the meta-analyses of the meta-analyses, right? And, and, and so we know in education as maybe one of the most researched industries, what actually works and what doesn't per data. 
but then we just don't do it, right? Like, so like, can you imagine like if that was what happened in medicine is like, oh yeah, like we know that we don't need to do open heart on this guy. We can just do angioplasty, but I like open heart. So we're just going to keep doing open heart. Like would that, that would in no way be okay, but we still do that in schools. And so like, I think that we just need to, to check that a little bit. Yeah. And then the last thing that I, I like to talk about with this, and this, this does exist in the medical field as well, is that geography sometimes determines access to high quality, right? So like I, we live about two hours outside of Chicago. Um, as explained, I've had some health issues. So like my wife knows, like under no uncircum circumstances, if something bad happens to me, there's two hospitals in the state of Illinois I'm going to, right? And, and those are both about two hours away. Now, so that's, so geography does determine a little bit of access to quality, but in schools, we are getting to a point where we have to be creative and have to continue to knock down barriers so that geography does not dictate access. Now, when most people hear me say that, they think I'm talking about urban and inner city. And I've seen it there and yes, but there's far, far more rural and small districts than there are urban districts. And so the fact that I've seen, again, countrywide and then in my own personal experience, what some kids have compared to what I'm able to provide my kids in my district, it is fundamentally unfair. And I think that we have to like, there's a moral and ethical imperative for us, particularly in small districts as leaders to figure out how we can provide the same type of access to high quality education and opportunities that kids in larger, more affluent districts would do. Like that is the thing that keeps me up at night. That is the thing that when I want to continue to move forward, how do I ensure that my kids leave here with every bit of an access or opportunity or hopefully an advantage compared to kids that are in the affluent suburbs 60 miles away from me. And so when, we, when we're talking about evolving education, to me, that's the question, what are we doing? Now, on top of this, we've got the teacher shortage, right? And so that should amplify this and accelerate it. And then on top of this, we had the pandemic and we know that we are able to connect people in multiple different areas and multiple different modalities to where that high quality education is. So do we have the ability to suspend our egos, which is really, I think, what usually gets in the way of saying, hey, district down the road, 40 miles, has a world-class physics teacher. I'm not going to try to find a physics teacher. I'm going to find a way to get my kids access to that physics teacher. And that, to me, is going to be the role of the superintendent in the next 10 to 15 years. Well, I agree with that. And, and you're really speaking also about uh, competing versus collaborating and how I think as, as schools and districts, you know, it's I do think that many times people who are highly successful are have have a level of competitiveness about them. I think that's a that's an important quality to have. Um, but in, in, in our schools, if we're competing, as long as our intentions are pure, uh, which means that we're competing for kids, we're co we're competing to to make their lives as, as great as we can uh, make them eventually and change the trajectory of their families and uh, et cetera. I think that's really important, but we can't compete. It can't be cutthroat competition where we're keeping all the secrets and we're keeping all the resources here. And if I'm an affluent district, I'm not really willing to share uh, with someone else. There's, there's such a, um, there's such an important balance there between competing for the betterment of kids' lives, but doing that collectively. 
so that we all are helping each other and sharing ideas and sharing resources. So that, that really resonates. And, and as the, uh, you know, I'm a CEO of a regional educational cooperative. And so that really resonates with me strongly uh, too. We have 28 school districts and that's exactly what we're working on uh, is how to find that balance. Yeah. It's, it's so funny, the things that get in our way, like, so first again, I think we have to make it, there's a bit of education that needs to go on, not to use that word, but like just to our communities. Like I coach a principal that's 45 miles away. I mean, sincerely 45 miles away. And right now she's struggling to find her second Mandarin teacher. And mm. she's in a junior high. We have one foreign language in our entire district, which is Spanish, right? She So like, just think about the juxtaposition of the experience kids are having there, right? Uh, the second is like, then we've invested almost a million dollars in state-of-the-art technology with 70 inch TVs in every high school classroom so that we can type in our classes because we have a lot of AP and dual credit classes for small rural to other districts in different parts of the state that can't do that, right? And so we do that free of, free of charge, just again, to for the greater good of, of society. Okay. Right now, we have not one school partnering with us because we're on the block schedule. So, so as a result, like we, we have done all of this this work to try to provide service, but we're, we're on like other schools that are unwilling to flip something as simple as logistics of a schedule yep. to provide their kids access because they don't want to, right? Like, so at some point we're going to have to give, right? Like there's going, it's not going to be easy. We are going to lose some autonomy in the process. Are we willing to do that on behalf of kids? And if we're not, then we're going to say we're going to accept a lesser product for our kids, which lesser opportunity, fewer advantages in order to maintain autonomy. And so that's why I say we have to suspend ego because um, I think that is a massive inhibitor right now. I agree. All right. So I want to uh, I want to get into coaching uh, a little bit. So I mentioned earlier, uh, you're a well-known author. Uh, you have a book that just came out, I believe just a few days ago, at least on pre-order, um, called cracking the coaching code. Uh, I read the synopsis and, uh, for sure, I'm going to read the book. Uh, like a lot of administrators, I used to be a coach. And one of the things that I, when I became a principal, I was very motivated and energized by the lessons that I learned when I was coaching young people that I still use even today. Uh, when working, when I'm working with my staff. So things like motivate, being motivational, uh, empowering the team and individuals within the team, setting goals. You mentioned celebrating success. That's something that it's important to do when you're coaching, uh, analyzing our actions and making adjustments uh, when things don't turn out like we thought. And then we talked about having a competitive mindset, you know, bringing that competitive mindset uh, to uh, to other leadership situations like being a, a school or district administrator. So the comparisons between things we learn when we're coaching uh, sports and things that we do in our jobs uh, as, as educational leaders just really kind of go on and on. So, you know, for me, coaching is a huge, uh, it's a huge key to a leader's success. What made you, as you wrote this book or as you plan to write this book, what made you want to, what made you focus on coaching? So one of the things that uh, is my favorite thing I do, it might be the best thing I do, and I stumbled on it. So it wasn't like, like a brilliant idea. Just I did it, and then I was like, oh, we should systemize it, system, make this more systematic. But I do exit interviews with every graduating senior. 
Mm -hmm. um, the same way that you would do it with somebody leaving your organization. And one of the questions we ask is who, what you thought was the most impactful in your, in your experience here in Meridian. And a disproportionate amount of those answers are coaches. Yeah. And, uh, and thankfully the majority of those were positive, but not all, right? Like, so some of the most impactful people were coaches because things did not necessarily go well. And so we do this toward the end of the senior year. And when I first started doing this it was like three years ago, then last year we did it and it kind of got the same answers again. So I'm thinking over the summer and I thought about what we do systematically to help our, our coaches grow. So now I'm sitting here, I have knowledge as a school leader that our coaches have a disproportional impact on our students' social emotional health, their attitudes, how they see themselves progressing in the future. And I thought about what I did as the school leader to help my coaches get better. And you know what the answer was? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Maybe I would allocate money if they asked to go to a conference that was largely probably about X's and O's and not about people. Yeah. And so I said, so two things kind of came up. One, good-hearted, and the other one maybe a little selfish. The good-hearted was like, we have to do better. We absolutely have to do better. The second is like, if there's nothing happening, there's a market gap, right? So, 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 um, so the business brain kicked in a little bit too, right? And so then it was like, all right, how do we help coaches learn how to better impact their athletes or whether it be a band director and their musician, whatever the case happens to be on a human level? Um, and what can we do to provide them training and support to better understand and, and try to maximize their positive impact and to maximize peak performance for the kids. And so the, the system that I use um, and a, a lot of my peers that I've coached with use when we're working with executives, um, we use Enneagram, which is a personality profile um, to then maximize and try to help people become more self-aware, identify blind spots, et cetera. Um, and in doing so, it's helped us to A, not only um, understand our own selves and increase our own self-awareness. Um, but it's also then allowed us to communicate differently to different type of personality archetypes so that we can elicit better performance out of them. And um, if people are like, oh, it's another personality profile book, those things are, you know, pop psychology. I will just say this. I said, if all of us that have been in leadership roles know that I could say the same thing to, to Dave and say the same thing to Dan and I would empower Dave and I would, and I would significantly inhibit Dan. I said the same thing in the same way. We know that we have to tailor messages to different people in different ways. Wouldn't it be nice to understand why? And wouldn't it be nice to understand how to start to target those messages? Um, so, so that was what was happening in the professional world. In the private world, I have kids who are athletes, and I was living what a good coach was doing to my kids and what a not-so-good coach was doing to my kids. Yeah. Um, and, and then I had like a horror story of a coaching um, example with, with my, my oldest son um, where he broke his ankle in overtime of a game where he had like 35 points. He was going off, having the game of his life, broke his ankle. Coach left him in the locker room because he was no longer going to help the team. Oh, gosh. So like totally like coaching malpractice, right? Yeah. And uh, I remember it was right before his 16th birthday. He had, and it's, This sounds like a country music song. Um, he broke up with his girlfriend breaks his ankle, can't play the rest of the season. And because he broke his ankle, he couldn't take his driving test. So he doesn't get his driver's license. <laughs> you know, the thing that he was most upset about what? was the fact that he must've let his coach down because he wouldn't talk to him. Wow. Goodness gracious. 
and so when I lived through that, I was like, all right, I've, now it's time to kind of put pen to paper and to try to work this through and to, and to help people understand um, and help coaches understand a little bit. And then we got into the writing of it and we talked to a bunch of coaches um, and explored the concept with them. And it, it kind of took off from there. It became a little bit bigger than I've expected in terms of launch. I mean, USA Baseball has endorsed it. Uh, the um, We've got several Hall of Fame coaches um, that read it and have said they wish they had it when they were they were coaching. Um, and we're not like some D3 Hall of Famers, but also, um, you know, the Clemson head coach of 38 years that went to the College Baseball World Series several times. So like we, we were pretty everyone that's picked it up has had pretty favorable things to, to say about the system. So we've kind of been overwhelmed, uh, my co-author and I, Dr. Brian Wills, um, with the initial reception of it. So I'm really excited to see where it goes. Well, congratulations, <clears throat> excuse me, congratulations. That, that's fantastic. I look forward to reading it as well. I will tell my own little Enneagram story. So um, I was just introduced to it uh, maybe, I don't know, two or three months ago, maybe, maybe six months ago. And it was introduced to me by one of my staff members, a person who's on my leadership team. And, and I had the same first reaction. I thought, well, you know, it's pop psychology. It's just another personality uh, quiz. But uh, she had had her whole team, uh, you know, take that and, and get the information back from it. And it had just opened her eyes to what motivated them. And I mean, it was just she had really gotten into it and it was helping her lead her team within our organization so much better. And so sure enough, I took it and uh, and, it, and it nailed me perfectly. Like it was exactly you know, I'm trying to be self-reflective. It was exactly who I think I am. And, uh, but then it revealed a few things about me that I thought, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but yes, that really does motivate me. So, so our whole staff has taken it now and we're, and I know there's a whole road for us to go down, figuring out how to lead people according to those personality uh, traits that they have, but, uh, or those, those dispositional qualities and uh, I'm really excited about it. It's It's been very eye-opening so far. For me, so it's funny, the, two quick nuggets on that. When I first took it, I came out between two uh, scores very, very closely. And uh, I read the descriptions, and I wanted to be a three, a type three. Um, but I kind of felt like I was probably a type eight. Yep. And uh, so I took it again, and I came out right in between. And I went to my boss and I'm like, I, I think I'm a three. He's like, nope. Uh, he's like, you're, you're an eight. And uh, he's like, here's the deal. My wife's name is Jackie. He's like, go home and have Jackie take it as though she was you. And it was like a strong eight when the person who loved me the most in the world took it. And so um, I still wasn't sold. I was still like, I don't like it because like type eights, there's a lot of positive quality. What I found is no matter what type you are, when you take it, people are either like, heck yeah, that's me. Or they start reading the negative parts. They're like, I don't know if I want that to be me. Yeah. And uh, so I started reading. And one of the things it says about AIDS is that you can come across condescending in meetings. Mm. So um, like I've tried to be a lot of different things and a lot of different meetings to get my point across, but like never have I walked into a meeting and said, I hope they think I'm condescending at the end of it. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so by this time, like my leadership team and I were pretty close. And so we sit down after a cabinet level meeting. I said, Hey, one thing before we go, I've been doing some reading and trying to increase some self-awareness. And um, do I come across condescending in meetings? And it was like bobbleheads, like up and down. And I was like, dang, this thing's on it, right? And so from then on, I was hooked um, and, and dug into Enneagram. And it's helped me um, It's helped me to coach and to lead undeniably. But more importantly, it's helped me to understand myself. Um, and 
like it's probably an overused metaphor, but we're all big onions, man. Like once you get through with one layer, there's another layer to peel through. Um, and I feel like Enneagram has really helped me to to do that, to understand my motivations, my fears, and most importantly, my blind spots. Yeah, same here. I, I actually turned out to be a three. And, uh, but, you know, there at three, I, I think the nickname is like achiever, yep. but, but, you know, there are plenty of negatives to being a three, uh, as well. And many of those applied to me <laughs> <laughs> as well. So, uh, so anyway, I, I'm having to learn to keep those in check. Um, so final question, and then we'll kind of do a little wrap up. Um, you know, you're an extremely busy person. You're doing really important work. What motivates you? I would say, um, and this is going to sound a little bit dark, um, but when I first had children, so 17 years ago, um, and I started to kind of become a man, because I, I was I was man age, but not really a man before that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I started to become an adult, and uh, I, I started to reflect on my, my health issues, and I sincerely thought that um, there was a good shot my kids would not get to know me. Yeah. And, um, but I thought they might get to know my work, um, if, if I did enough in the, in the time that I was here. And obviously my kids are older now and, and, and thankfully that didn't come, come to, to bear, but I do believe that education is legacy work. Um, and that our job is simply to leave the, the world a little better that we found it and, um, to do so in whichever way we can. And so, goes back to like Apple's vision statement under Steve Jobs, like put a ding in the universe. Um, I kind of feel like that's what we're all put on earth here to do is put a little ding in the universe. And so that that's what motivates me. I just want to put that ding in the universe and to, to leave it better than I found it. And to um, when my kids are old enough to think about me, to think that I did good work, not only on behalf of leading our family and loving them, um, but did good work on be, behalf of the communities that we, we lived in and that, uh, that I lived a life of integrity and, and tried my, tried my hardest. Fantastic. I can tell you're doing those things. Um, so as we wrap up, uh, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, we have lots of leaders. We have some business leaders who listen to the podcast as well. Uh, but school and district leaders, primarily any other, uh, tips or strategies or just anything that you want to throw in that you want to make sure our listeners, uh, hear before we sign off for today, PJ. Yes. Uh, so the thing that I talk probably most about is time management. Um, and so I'll give a couple nuggets on time management just as kind of a teaser. But um, I will say the number one thing is that time management actually doesn't exist. Um, even So we all have the same 24 hours in the day. And so when I keynote on this, a lot of times I'll be like, hey, raise your hand if you have an issue with time management. 70% of the hands go up. Then I say, raise your hand if you have an issue managing yourself. And like four hands go up in the audience. I'm like, well, actually, if you have problems with time management, it's just a man, you're, you're just having issues managing yourself. So if, if you are sitting here right now saying, I might have issues with time management, you don't. You have issues with managing yourself. This is an internal issue, not an external issue. Um, so that's number one on that. Number two is that um, there is no such thing as work-life balance. There's work-life integration or work-life fit um, and figuring out how that goes. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is look at the people that are respected um, for being um, like excellent at what they do. And so Kobe Bryant is one that's kind of immortalized for work ethic, right? Well, when Kobe was getting up at three in the morning to work out the first time of the day because he wanted to get four workouts in, do you think he was thinking about balance? No, he was thinking about excellence. 
So I am not saying that the goal shouldn't be to, to live a life that brings you joy, but to try to think of balance, because when we think of balance, we think of either a teeter-totter or the scales of justice. It's just not going to happen. So if we can abandon that, I think it would be good. And then the last thing is this. A lot of people talk about priorities in life. And so most people's priorities usually fit into one of seven categories, faith, family, friends, fitness, their own personal finances, work, or their hobbies. In order to have priorities, it means you have to deprioritize several of those other things. And so when somebody says, well, I, I'm struggling with time management or self-management, it's largely because the priorities aren't in order. And what that means is that you're trying to be great at all seven of those things. At one time, most, I don't know a single human being that can be great, friend, family member at work in the best shape of their life, making as much money as they can, exhibiting their hobbies and crushing it. Like I, So we at different times in our life, we have to have different priorities of which we can route our time. And the only way we can do that is if we rid ourselves of guilt. Um, and so that's an interesting paradigm to work through. Love it. Maybe there's an, maybe we can have another podcast episode. We talk about time management. I need to hear that one myself. Anytime. Um, uh, PJ, last thing, how, how can uh, our listeners learn more uh, about you and learn more from you? So I'm available on just about every social platform at M-C-U-S-D soup. I'm an S-U-P-E soup abbreviation guy. I know some are S-U-P-T's. So I'm just about everywhere at M-C-U-S-D soup. Um, and if my, my name, PJ Capozzi is where my website is www.pjcapozzi.com. And uh, if you go there, it links to hundreds of articles and books and, and all the things. So um, you can find me there. I'd, not hard to find me if you Google me. Awesome, man. Listen, this was so much fun. I appreciate you joining me today. Really appreciate the opportunity. It was a great conversation. All right. So that's going to do it for another episode of Advantage. Thanks again to Dr. PJ Capozzi for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners as well. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week with a new episode. Take care.